0: I'm getting ready to run for president and be like, you know what I'm going to do? Nothing. Like, I'm not raising taxes. I'm not lowering taxes. I'm just going to let you guys, like, chill. This country is so turbulent. Skippy, the do-nothing president. Yeah. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougles, that like to debate about investing content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Mr. Skippy. What's up, Dougals? We are embarking on the real first day of spring, I feel like, today. Today? Today. Is this supposed to snow next week? Probably. Uh, let's dive into the fishbowl a little bit. I think you you mentioned the potential for some pizza. Oh, did I ever? Now I don't quite understand how the pizza is going to work on the podcast, but uh, okay. So but you always pull something let's, off. Let's talk. Let's talk about uh, your favorite college town, Diggles. Actually, the, the don't even talk about your favorite college town. If I told you there was an exhaustive study done on the best pizza joint in every college town, and these are power five conference college i call you a liar Uh, (laughs) oh yeah you'd be right but if i told you that one of these names a pretty prominent university the best pizza joint is chuck e cheese would you first of all would you believe me and second of all (laughs) what would your guess be so i'm trying to guess what the town is the town yeah okay so the zero percent chance that Chuck E. Cheese, with like Showtime Biz, is uh, the number one pizza. That stuff is like, it's like as if you you made a piece of cardboard, threw some like Velveeta on it, and put it next to a vent for twelve hours. That there's zero percent uh, chance. I mean, but uh, I'm told that this is basically the only pizza joint in the town. Uh, my research tells me. So okay, I gotta go. I'm I wanted to go like uh, Columbia for a moment. <sighs> No, I, I can't, I can't, I can't even, I can't even disgrace with a guess. <laughs> this is so great. Cause we're going to talk about Columbia, Missouri next. Uh, no, <laughs> it's, it's Tuscaloosa, Alabama, baby. Oh, the best no kids to join. way. You get come the on. number one football players in America to come eat some tuc- Chuck e cheese. Like this tells you they're handing people bags of money. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, and let me hit you with a couple more. Actually, I already mentioned it. Shakespeare's Pizza in Columbia, Missouri. Columbia. Boom. On the list. Shakespeare's quality spot. Uh I I definitely recommend that. a couple more shout outs here. Pints or Pies and Pints uh in Kentucky is is a good spot. Where else? Um Where are you going with this? Yeah, I don't know. I just I just love pizza. And I love uh <laughs> Is that your nice to tell me to move on? All right, we're moving. No, on. I just didn't know because there's this company slice that just raised a whole bunch of VC funding. I wasn't sure if you were like, if you were going down that, that route, I know slice man, one of the local pizza joints around here uses Slice, um, And we should talk about their business model sometime. So yeah, yeah. put on the back burner. There we go. Uh, I'll, I'll put that on the Twitter. If you guys want to check out the best pizza joint in every college town in America. All right. Can we bring some sense back to this podcast? yeah let's do it we got some listener mail and uh we actually got a a decent amount of listener mail we're gonna uh we gotta split it up a little bit yeah Yeah? i think we got to split it up yeah i'll save some for next week but but let's uh let's go into uh chris sent us a little mail i'm gonna start there yeah first of all what's up chris thanks for the mail um long list of questions here all really good stuff so we've covered some of this in past episodes but i know it's hard to get back through um everything so i think a refresher is really nice um chris's first question talks about uh picking individual stocks rather than indexing and basically i love this question like do you guys believe you are above average investors because a lot of times on the show we're pontificating about individual stocks i guess on my side yes I do believe I'm an above average investor. Um, I think my track record shows that, but that's, a one of the contradictory things about investing, which is really crazy is like 90 plus, maybe as high as 99% of people should probably not pick individual stocks. But then the people that end up talking about investing and sometimes in quotes, giving advice about investing are often that, you know, that 5% or whatever that, maybe is equipped to pick individual stocks. So I do pick individual stocks. I have uh, a methodology and like a 20 year history around it. And um, that's, there's a reason I'm comfortable with it. But absolutely, Chris, I agree that probably the average investor, or as like Buffett calls it, the know nothing investor should probably not pick individual stocks. Agreed on the uh, on the vast majority of investors not picking individual stocks. Um, and. And, as you point out in a couple of the docs that you sent over, Chris, like generally speaking, I mean the data, whether you we talked about the Dalbar methodology before, yeah. and whether you go along with that methodology or not or look at something else, like the results are not positive um, for the the general average individual investor picking stocks. So that's why I've talked about how when when folks generally come to me, I'll be like, I think you should just invest in the market, which I view as VTI, which is Vanguard's total market index. Um, but, but uh, but yeah, Skippy and I have different methodologies that we both use and uh, different strategies, but uh, believe in those strategies and do believe that they're above average. Is it worth giving a like a two minute on each of them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, my strategy comes out uh, basically uh, pops out of chapter fourteen of the Intelligent Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham, and as we've detailed on the show, plenty um there's lots of history around value investing outperforming over the long term i'm going to talk on another book um, that i'm in the middle of right now that makes that crystal clear um but on top of that it'd be one thing for someone else to read that book and decide they want to do this but it if that's not their natural temperament and they can't stick with that strategy when it underperforms for a five-year stretch um, they're going to end up on the the wrong side of things in my case that kind of fits my temperament, and I fully believe in the core principles, and so I can ride with it through thick and thin. Dougals, we've talked about this, but when you talk about picking individual stocks, and you talk about finding a strategy that works for you, the psychological component here is probably the most difficult thing. Critical, yeah, absolutely critical. Because just like you said, you can ride through the thick and thin, and like with my strategy, there's, there's some thick, um, that, that happens or the thin, I'm not sure which one is the is the, the yeah. negative side, but, uh, but, but pretty material drawdowns. And, um, and it's different than the value side that, uh, that Skippy talked about. I go momentum, uh, or I call it long trend, uh, momentum, typical momentum strategies look at pretty short time horizons, like one day, one month, three month, kind of 12 month yeah. um, type returns. And then they'll invest for a similar, like short-term time horizon on the other side, And mentally going back to the psychology, like I just can't get comfortable with that short of a performance period dictating what I do. And so I don't go with that style of momentum. I look at companies' performance and look at those companies that are at least five years public and have done and have outperformed uh, the market and peers pretty substantially and consistently over long periods of time, up to 20 years. Um, And so uh, considerable outperformance is like about 3x uh, the market is what we're talking about. And then also are showing Really strong additional momentum over the last one year, five year, three year, five year, and ten year time horizons. So it's like, it's pretty long trend um, of what I look at. Um, it's confidence, and as as Skippy was saying, just confidence in in the uh, in the model um, itself. I I look at the data, and while there are significant drawdowns over any ten year period over the last fifty years, on average, it beat the market by about fifty percent. Over any 20 year period, on the average, it beat the market by about 3x. And over that time period, and back testing beat the market by about 17x. And I just kind of have faith in that. And so far, it's performed really well for me. Um, so that's where I- I'd say, yes, above average, um, both in from a return perspective and in my, my eyes, also what we talked about from a psychology perspective. I think in understanding that psychology and addressing it and acknowledging it, um, that alone. I think can make someone at least have the temperament to be an above-average investor. Yeah, and there's so many trade-offs here, right? I think um, temperament is key. There's so much great, whether it's podcasting material, reading material, whatever else, that's free today. I would say anyone that's interested could probably skill up to be an above-average investor. The question is if that really makes sense for you. Like, if that trade-off of spending nights and weekends potentially researching stocks, is where you wanna go. And and for most people, not only is that not necessarily fun, but then on top of that, the swings in uh, performance, and uh, the turbulence that comes with investing in equities, even if it starts off as fun, because you make a few bucks, becomes a lot less fun when you start losing. Chris, even the average investor that maybe should invest in the market, they still, I think, have to think about how they manage their temperament, and the psychological component that comes with the swings of the market and like for someone like uh my dad that was i'm just gonna put money in my 401k and never look at the thing you know that was his management strategy and he ended up a- in good shape because of it uh but i think that's what i'd urge is kind of some self-reflection not necessarily for you chris i imagine you're an above average investor but for your average person about What does this mean? What am I getting myself into? How do I manage the psychological component of uh, this piece of the game? Because I don't think the human brain is typically wired for it. Um, How about podcasts you listen to, man? That was another question that uh, that Chris asked. What are your faves? I think I really like Invest Like the Best by Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Um, He's smart. He is a great – he's great at asking questions. And he now has the cachet to get almost any guest he wants. I mean, I won't be surprised if a president shows up on that in the near future. Um, we've talked about masters in business. There's some some really good stuff on there. Yeah, I one. like uh, MEB favor show for sure uh, on occasion. Um, how about you? Yeah, so those I like, and then a couple on the um, I'll just call it the business side and the startup side that I like. Uh, pivot uh, I like a lot this week in startups. Um, I like a lot. Capital allocators is a good one, I think right. on the investor side. Um, and then the 20 minute VC uh, is one on like the venture capital space and startup space, which I think is pretty cool. So those are some I also I listen to a whole bunch of podcasts that have nothing to do with business or investing that I'll leave out of this one. But but those are the like the tops that I typically go to when it comes to the the business investing side. A lot of great investors have said, and I think it's been proven that many of your best investment ideas come from other fields so i definitely yep. do some invest in podcasting and some investing reading but i cherish uh the stuff outside of the field because I, I think that's where you are able to connect the dots between multiple fields in a way that can sometimes meaningfully improve your investment strategy and so i'd really encourage that yeah fully agree and even outside the podcast world i uh, i just finished a book called thinking and systems which is similarly, I mean, it touches on um, how governments work, how corporations work, how like bathtubs work, right? It's just like kind of looking, <laughs> looking at systems generally, and how you can uh, inject or or take inflows outflows, and how that works with systems. And I, I think things like that just uh, open horizons, um, and, and making those patterns, I think goes a heck of a long way. So I love it. Yeah. Uh, Chris also talked about common stock and potentially sharing our portfolio with others. I mean, there's a disclaimer at the beginning of the show, you know, we're, we're not trying to brand this as investment advice. Uh, but Chris, we are thinking long term about doing deep dives into the portfolios, breaking down some historical performance and those sort of things. So um, stay tuned there. Uh, and we'll probably give you some, some more insights. I know my uh, rebalance is coming up like early June, and I'll definitely do a deep dive on the, the past year and kind of what's showing up on the screens going forward for me. Uh, so I'm we'll excited about that. on that. I'm really Thanks excited so much that. for the email, Chris. We loved it. Um, hopefully we did justice to your questions. We also I I'm just got I got a shout out to my boy, Jack Dougal. So, uh, Jack, thanks for the email as well. What else? What else do we have today? Dougals? Not not finalized yet. However, just when you got Biden fatigue, I'm going to talk about him again. Get right. back in the room. When do you trying want to my, I mean, do you want my rant to start or to end this? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just maybe somewhere in the middle. Um, so basically, next week, Biden's gone in front of Congress to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. One of the things, though, that he's going to talk about, we got a little bit of a hint of on Thursday this week, which is uh, which is increasing the long term capital gains tax, right, mm-hmm. for for wealthier Americans. So um, so what he's saying and what the proposal seems like it's going to be at a high level is to change the long-term capital gains tax to actually map to the um, the ordinary income tax, which is what short-term capital gains does, for individuals that make over one million dollars a year, right? So that's going to so it, it's going to increase the tax rate there, for the ordinary income tax to thirty nine point six, I think it is, and then also increase the long-term capital gains tax from twenty percent where it is today, up to that thirty nine point six plus the uh, the Medicare expansion surcharge. So, yeah, which is like three point eight plus. Um, you could pay state and local taxes on exactly, this stuff as well. Exactly. So, so you're uh, looking. I mean, you could be forty three point eight or something like that. Forty three yep. something, uh, plus some other nonsense. It's. Yeah, I think they're saying in the state of New York, like in New York City, I think it's north of fifty five percent, maybe pushing sixty yeah. percent. I think it's. I think it's hitting similar rates if you go over to California. Some places in California too. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty high um it's substantial and so we'll there's so much detail uh that we still don't have but just in the concept i want to talk about the concept of it for a moment give me your your initial reaction and we can dive in a little bit i don't understand the persecution of uh of business owners um and i i know that's not how most people think of it and i think that's where i get frustrated like when you own stock in a company you are a business owner and it's that simple so uh why you want to take more money away from your business owners it's just it's just frustrating to me it's not like you know no one goes oh my local pizza shop in my favorite college town i should just go steal some more of their profits but that's kind of in a way what you're doing and you're talking about doubling the capital gains now i know it is for now Douglas, is it for people making over a million or people with a net worth of more than a million people make annual income Okay, annual money. income. So the counter argument here is, uh come on, this is nobody like, th- this is a very small sliver of people. But I just, it just leaves me with an icky taste in my mouth, I guess, is my initial reaction. Yeah, I mean, I i have, a, I have a couple reactions. I think one is, I mean, he's got $4 trillion, you got to figure out how to pay for. <laughs> so, so that that's one side, right? So how do you pay for it? Um, I think it's a Going back to uh, thinking in systems, I think for a moment yeah. this is not anything from the book, but just generally thinking in systems. I think we need to see the full picture first. It's hard to look at this coming in dribs and drabs because, like, we don't know what might happen with the corporate tax rate, right? And to your point, if you increase the corporate tax rate, and part of the part of the rationale that I've seen around having a lower capital gains tax rate is to try and mitigate the impact of like a double tax, basically, because you're taxing the corporation, then you're taxing the business owners. Right. Additionally, yeah. and so if you increase the corporate tax rate, increase the long-term capital gains rate, the what does that do to the full system? Right? I think we need to look at this systematically. So there's there's a question I have there, from a Pilketty perspective. Right. We've talked about um, capital in the 21st century. He argues that that because uh, in his universal law, R is greater than G, meaning the rate of return on capital is perpetually greater than the rate of return on growth, that that leads to inequality. So taxing Capital additionally to feed that back into the system is a way to reduce inequality. If you look at that from an economics perspective, from from Pilketty's economics perspective, yeah, not the yeah. whatever eighty percent of people that disagreed with Pilketti, Um then you can say this is a <laughs> this is a way for us to try and tie back I, uh, inequality. I still found errors in this spreadsheet, man, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> no this is why I love talking to you because i I like. I like to think through this from multiple perspectives, I guess I don't hear what, you know, we'll talk about this next week or the week after when it gets fully baked. Right. But I don't hear him with that logic necessarily being like, this is how I'm solving inequality in America. You know, this podcast official stance on that is the reverse. We want to see more people start to own businesses, you know, of all income levels better understand that that's a, a way that a lot of people generate wealth and so i'd like to see it flip i i don't necessarily want to tax the current equity owners more i want more people to own equities and more people to understand how to grow their wealth from that perspective but that's not an easy fix either and that's something that the government can't really do anything about and that certainly is not raising four trillion dollars let me throw uh, or go back to one thing we talked about before to get your view on. And then can we uh, quizulate a little bit, quizulate yeah, and perpetrate? Yeah. All right. So before we talked about um, incentivizing even longer term holds, what, yes. what could be interesting is if you made if we made like a three year five year threshold that had a, a lower tax rate. If you if you do this, if you increase the if you basically make short term capital gains, anything from zero to five. And then make five low, I think that okay. I haven't thought that one through a lot, but there could be something interesting I think in that um that's again going back to like thinking about the system um if you want to incentivize longer term business holding mm-hmm. because you know you could you could argue that someone holding a stock for three months, six months, nine months, twelve months fifteen months are you really a business owner like i mean you, you could start to conceptually start to make that that argument. I don't know if I agree with that question, but i'm just I'm throwing it out there if I'm a business and I'm raising capital capital by issuing equities and people are buying those and providing that liquidity i don't really care you know if they provide me the money i need to run my business and then they sell them to someone else three months later i don't really care they still gave me the money i needed when i need it as part of my capital you know my equity <laughs> structure yeah. so i just this just leaves a sour taste in my mouth and this is i i mentioned this last time but I seriously, I'm getting ready to run for president and be like, you know what I'm going to do? Nothing. Like, I'm not raising taxes. I'm not lowering taxes. I'm just going to let you guys like chill. This country is so turbulent. Skippy the do nothing president. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You'd vote for me. wouldn't you? I mean, no, I'm not messing with anything. Uh, I'm taking the fifth on that one. (laughs) I just feel like, all sides are so polar opposites, and they tend to not represent like the middle eighty percent of the country, and that's probably the middle sixty percent of the country. Like, I don't know that people were hollering like, "Come raise our taxes," and in the previous administration, I don't know that people were hollering like, "Come lower our taxes." Like, yeah. I just let's, let's wait to see. Let's let's go deeper into this. Let's wait to see what he says. But um, yeah. but yeah, I, I I hear you. Let's uh, let's get the detail. Come back to it. In the meantime quiz you ready for it? Yeah, I'm ready. There's nothing more exciting than a tax quiz. So let's go go to just marginal income tax rates. This is not capital gains for a second. Okay. What what was the highest marginal income tax rate in the history of the United States? Um, And this is federal. Uh, 94%. Not half bad. Not half bad. 91%. Oh, no, sorry, 92%. 92%. 92%. in um, so all of the, the highness, your highness was in the fifties and it was either 91 or 92% throughout the 1950s. What's the lowest? At the federal level? Federal. Well, federal I areas. mean, if you make less than $10,000, you don't pay any tax, right? So is it zero? Okay. Sorry. What was the, <laughs> I, let me, okay. <laughs> the, the, yeah, no, you, you got, you got, my question was incorrect. The lowest top marginal tax rate. Oh, oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were absolutely correct in your, your answer for that. 31? 31? Seven, seven. No, so back, when was that? Yeah, b- back when it started, 1913, 1914, 1915 was 7%. Because for a time, we didn't have income taxes, right? Um, yeah. And then, it, and then it like, whew, we had some highs, some lows. It was high for a bit, though. I mean, we had a lot of, oh, no, you know what? I actually missed two years, 94% was the highest. You were right. In 1944, 1945. Get them war dollars going. It was at the end of thought, World I War II. I thought right. I knew that one, actually. So. You're right. You're right. Um, All right. Okay. So, hey, wait, 1912, 1913. Did, did it come in as a 7% for everyone, regardless of your income? Or was it always tiered? Uh, 1913 to 15. Um, I have to go look. I'm not sure. That's a good question. It's a good question. I mean, I, I might, w- once, once Biden uh, talks to Congress, I may go into a little bit more depth here, but, but go. Roll it. out. I've always thought that the tiered approach, how the fact that the tiered approach is never questioned, like pretty much across the world, is always a little bit of a bizarre thing to me. Like, um, but I get it. And I yeah. now trying to avoid a regressive conversation. Yeah. You just want to avoid a regressive tax. That's the. Yeah. Yep, That's the issue. Yep. All right. Uh, highest long term capital gains rate. This is going back to 1954. The data I'm looking at. Ooh, hold on. Um, going back to 1954, 35%. 39.875%, um, which existed from 1976 to 1978. So that was coming out of the, the stagflation, or going through, I should say, like the stagflation OPEC situation. What was the lowest? Uh, I have the 1920s is like 12-ish percent. Well, I only, this only goes back to 1954. So, I mean, oh. You just uh, you broke the rules. First, break all the rules. Uh, I see you read that. Yeah. So fifteen percent. Yeah. What do you? Are you? Looks like you're looking at Google. <laughs> is this a real? No, this is in my fishbowl actually. So I have a whole chart. I'm gonna throw this on the Twitter too. I oh, cool. I didn't even realize that I could cheat until just a moment ago. But uh, <laughs> you're not good at it. I tell you that much. At least keep your eyes on the prize over here. So this um, is crazy. Yeah. It actually, mine's from. Uh, I think this is from Bloomberg they have slightly different figures they're showing basically like the 40s through the almost late 60s at 25% then they show a peak up to or 35% in the 70s looks like it came all the way back down to 20% and then jumped 80s. back to like 25 27% bottom out gosh is this uh bush the bush era yeah. no is this clinton at 15% Bush took it down to 15. Okay, yeah. And then Obama bumped it up to where it is today. Yeah. I mean, so a lot of the stuff, if you have, let's say, 50 plus years of history, those help set the bounds pretty nicely, I think. Yeah, we'd be going to the highest capital gains tax in the history of America. Um, now, only for people to make more than a million bucks a year, but. It just seems outsized to me. Yeah. And there's a point uh, when, going back to Pilketty's capital in the 21st century, there was a one argument that he made um, was around how when you get to a certain place, I don't know, if 40%, 43% is that place. But when you get to like 91%, like when you start getting to that, that point, um, it's actually it's less about the tax itself, because most people aren't going to be paying that. And it's more about uh, record keeping and trying to find things that are um, that are off the books and get them onto the books. Uh, which I don't know if that incentivizes or disincentivizes, but but I, I thought it was is interesting. Just starting to track something you didn't track before. I don't think that that's the purpose of this. This is definitely money because um, Biden's going after, as we talked about last time, foreign, you know, tax um, of you of Americans. He's trying to bring in all the tax to pay for these things. But yeah, I thought it was interesting. Well, so this is the thing we need to do a deep dive on next week, or assuming this if this passes, right? Um, this is going to change investment strategies, like. If I'm sitting in California and I have to pay sixty ish percent of my capital gains, that could totally make it let's just use me as an example that could make a strategy that i've back tested um and taking taxes out and taking transaction costs and everything accounted for all those things. I'm gonna have to redo all those back tests because yeah. it it like might not make sense for me to do this anymore um it's just crazy the potential implications. And here's the thing that I don't think Biden fully understands yet. And I'm not sure that many people fully understand it, but um so it's like what you said, if if my tax rate was 94%, I'm not paying that. I'm either leaving the country or I'm hiding my income or I'm doing something, right? There's no there's no chance I'm giving someone 94% of my earnings. What's going to happen if capital gains tax is north of 40% is I'm going to hide my assets from the US government. And just within the past 10 years, there's actually ways to do that. And I'm talking about cryptos here where you can always comes back to cryptos, cryptic cryptos, <laughs> which is crazy because I'm the value guy and cryptos are are absolute craziness. but. Now, more than any time, if you're talking about the 1980s, like, where do I hide my investments from the government? I think that's pretty damn hard to do. Well, right now, I could buy a bunch of Bitcoin with a anonymous unanim- anonymous wallet and just let me, laugh let me throw, at them as they try and get taxes from me. Let me throw a different angle in there, because um, one thing that's interesting is that there are a number of wealthy individuals, right, that hide their income in investments. In order to avoid income, right? Um, a big category I'll throw out is uh, is carried interest, right? For yeah. private equity firms, yeah. so uh, carried interest, like a in simplest way to think about it is that you look at the amount that's invested of a firm, and a percent um, of that amount goes to income for partners that they call carried interest, and that carried interest is actually um, it's taxed at capital at a capital gains rate but it's effectively your salary. I mean, like in, in many ways to look at, it, it's basically your salary, but you get this lower, uh, this lower, um, tax rate on it. And this is where I might be convoluting a couple of things, but I don't think so. Um, but I think this is where a lot of, uh, what's his name, uh, Mitt Romney, where his like yes. trillion dollar IRA comes from. Have you, have you read about mitts? Like it's not trillion dollar, but it's like he, Mitt Romney has this insanely valued Roth IRA has been able to put uh, his carried interest from uh, Bain Capital hedge fund into a Roth IRA. Yes. Um, and it's basically now earning all kinds of cash, cash free, or sorry, tax tax free on the back end. Because um, yeah. it's a Roth. But but I think that that's like an interesting, that's a. I wonder if there are other categories, right? That's one category, PE firms carried interest. But I wonder if there are other categories where people are hiding income in investments in order to to avoid some tax too yeah well and i think there's actually some discussion about carried interest uh with this capital gains plan and i forget how they were speculating they'd do it but there almost there was some speculation that almost like each year they might make you <laughs> you're gonna laugh at the term uh like mark to market like that and pay some taxes on it like um uh, there was some so like, rumor about games? that going on because the carried interest loophole call it is uh it's a big loophole but hey yeah. like Romney's not spending that money right now so you're gonna tax him on stuff that uh, and I don't know no there's it's just it's a it's a fascinating discussion let's let's see the more detail that he throws out but I think it's a we got to look at the whole it's we got to look at the whole system right even going back to what we talked about with uh Joel Greenblatt right like I think this also becomes interesting because if you if you can further incentivize people to go to retirement accounts where this tax, I don't yeah. think is going to apply, right, and you can increase limits, but have a have an additional tax on top of your limits today, like we talked about, right, IRA $6,000 a year, if you're under the age of 50, you make that 10 $12,000. But that extra 4k 6k, you now tax somewhat, I think that you, if you create the right system around this, well, if you create the right incentives, it drive all incentives drive yeah. behavior. It yeah. Creating the right incentives here is pro- practically impossible. And I'm going to apologize to the listeners because I don't know that anyone wants to listen to politics and tax policy. But hey, we're I'm just keeping uh, we're keeping going. No here. one has wanted so, to listen to anything we've talked about, but we still talk <laughs> perfect, about it. Why are you bringing perfect, that up now? Perfect. So w- what's going to happen here? You talked about retirement accounts. Like, so let's say I, I make some money and. I have a decent sized retirement account and I'm freaking retired. Now, my understanding of this is I sell some stuff and make a million dollars in gains. That's going to get taxed at the 40%. And then that's got that million dollars is going to be considered my income. And then I'm going to be taxed on the income of that sale. Like, and then I'm going to go to Target and then I'm going to pay the 10% tax on top of that. It just seems like I, I just have tax fatigue, man. I just, I can't take it anymore. This Wait, so you get you got cost fatigue and revenue fatigue? I got all th- sorts th- this of This is fatigue. why you're the do nothing president. Which is why you should vote for me, man. <laughs> I, I, I like this. All right. Enough, enough with the taxes. Uh fishbowl. What else you got? All right. I want to talk briefly. Um there's a a brilliant book came out Tuesday. Um it's by William Green. It's called Richer, Wiser, Happier. Um, this is it's gonna end up. I'm pretty sure it's going to end up in my top five recommendations of all time. Oh, you got to be incredible. Are you, are you really, doing really good? Uh, no, I'm halfway through. So I just man, want to throw a, a couple of, that's facts quite a recommendation. Away. This book is, is great. I check it out. So let me throw a few facts your way. Basically it's, it's breaking down the world's best investors and their strategies and kind of have a lifetime of reflection. And because it's brand new, it talks about coronavirus it talks about um, yep. what happened in 2020. It goes through people's, uh, you know, talks about Graham and Marx and uh, everybody you can imagine. Everyone throws around uh, the Templeton name. And like, I, I'm generally aware of him, but I hadn't read a, a decent breakdown. So one, apparently is a, a very nutty guy. And I'll tell you, I'm, Confident that this is a, a true fact. Who's the best investor ever to denounce his U.S. citizenship? It's definitely John Templeton. Man, the guy went to <laughs> Yale. The guy made all sorts of money here, and then he's like, "Eh, I think I'm moving to Bermuda. I'm out of this joint, or the Bahamas, or somewhere," um, and became a a UK citizen. Isn't that freaking wow. crazy? Okay, tell me more about the craziness. All right, so in 1939 he takes on leverage to buy 104 stocks, um, including some that are bankrupt um, with a simple hypothesis of, oh, the world's at war. Everything looks really bad. This is the moment of greatest pessimism. I should buy some stocks. Like that's incredible, uh, incredible foresight, incredible mean reversion. Uh, Five years later, he makes 5X on this investment. It's a really fascinating thing. Here's what I want to hammer on, Dougal's, and it's not necessarily with John Templeton, but with anybody. If the U.S. doesn't win World War II, that is not a fabulous investment. And no one writes a book about John Templeton being one of the greatest investors of his generation. So in your eyes, does that mean he made a great investment or not? Yeah, it does. I mean, so I, one thing I think is really important is I'm a poker player and within that world, but I think in general, it's very important to separate outcomes from whether or not something was a good decision. So whether or not it was a good investment, I'd have to look at like his specific analysis, right. To see what, what like risk reward I think was, but, but you, everything in investments is is a bet, right? I mean, uh, you with know, a me, probabilistic outcome. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, and so I, I think I feel like I remember, I think he might have been written about in a common stock and uncommon profit. I think the Philip Fisher book too. I yeah, think for some yeah. reason. But um, but yeah, I, I think it, it probably was. And depending on you said he made it in 39. Yeah. So that actually, if he made these investments in 39, the US has nothing to do with this and the us didn't even come into the war for it so this is you're just you're betting that the world's not going to come to an end <laughs> like in at that point so that was that's that was effectively air. the calculus and he was effectively saying it was almost one of those give me the the companies that have struggled most i forget his exact criteria but it was a yeah. straight value play mean reversion like these things fell off a cliff and when they come back they're going to come roaring back and i expect, yeah basically the world to survive us to get to the other side the thing the the point I want to make because I just always think luck is overlooked is like man there's probably he probably had a French counterpart that was just as brilliant same temperament made that same bet maybe with French stocks and didn't get those returns at in 1944 so I think that's always important to point out this dude he's he's the 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 only thing I'll throw out is just going back to what we were talking about before is he came out of this at a point where there was a 94% tax rate so i like i, I don't know how that how that impacted i don't know what the long term capital gains was but i'm curious i'm curious as to what the uh, the net Wait, return I was throwing shade about him denouncing his US citizenship i think i just figured it out man <laughs> that that that, <laughs> that very well might be it The other thing that I just want to point out. So he made his first massive bet, 1939, 60 years later, 60 years later, a lot of people don't even live 60 years. He's still in his investment, like lifetime, 60 years later. He, uh, 1999, he shorted 84 tech stocks. He put over $2 million each in each of these shorts. Um, And then something like, 185 million total again he had so much money at this point i don't know that that's a meet. does he give a month though is there is there a month in there uh not in my notes but certainly in the book i think it's Mm. i think it was like uh november maybe okay wow but uh yeah made made tons of money on that as well like uh really interesting fascinating dude the other thing i'll mention with my john templeton knowledge that i just never knew is this dude was when when he was wealthy he was going to places like harvard because he's a deeply religious man and saying i will give you millions of dollars to study things like if prayer works in a scientific way and that again that like that's a very unique thing to John Templeton. Not many deeply religious people are also like scientific and analytical yep. enough yeah. to be like connect these two worlds. And I think that's a, a really fascinating thing. Like, I would d- love reading those studies because uh, that approach is not often taken, right? And so it just shows you odd guy, smart guy. I don't know if I want to emulate his life or anything, but um, <laughs> interesting don't. character. I know that you don't. <laughs> So, that, is hey, that I what might want to work can, out in the ocean every day that's true can you throw out that book title one more again the book title is richer wiser happier by William Green awesome it's it's on the list now it's on the list cool it's really appreciate good appreciate that okay one last quiz for you and then uh we may be wrapping it up so we know that uh Investors in the late '80s got fascinated with the Japanese stock market, right?
1: Yeah, we we talked Um, about
0: that a little while ago. It led Cape uh, the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio up to was it a hundred ish? I mean, like something silly, unheard of values. Um, And real estate specifically as well was out of control. Real estate, yeah, Um, Japan relatively small company country in terms of land and population in the grand scheme of the world, right? But uh, the innovation that was happening there in the 80s was captivating, and definitely led to a bubble. Don't they have the second largest stock market in the world by market cap? Today? Yeah, I think today they might. US, Japan and China, I think. But anyway, keep going. Let's run those numbers. Let me but that's perfect. Uh, That leads directly into my conversation. So what percentage of investments by market cap did Japan have in 1989. So basically all of Japanese equities compared to all of the world's equities were worth what at the peak of the bubble doodles? That's your question. Percent wise? Yeah. Percent wise. Uh, Let's say 68. Wow. 68 would be crazy. 45%. So. I mean, see, I'm, I'm US, like beyond, though. You know what yeah. I'm saying? I'm beyond the bubble. <laughs> You're beyond the bubble. But like the U.S. right now is uh, I think it's 50. Well, it was 52 percent a while back and it's grown. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Anything else on your list? I'm, I'm trying to. There's so much like records amounts of cash in places. And I want to like I want to pull out like those different units and then get a sense for what that, like, a, by a sense, I really mean like a, a perspective on what that means. Meaning, like, the, the different places I've seen this are uh, record consumer savings in the U.S. over the past year. Um, private equity firms have a record amount of unspent cash. SPACs have raised $100 billion they need to spend. And I'm kind of just like, there's like all this money that's sitting out there. And, I'm, 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 and then you have, I don't know how much cash in margin debt, but I'm just like, yeah, like what happens so- to it? This exact thing happened to me th- this week. And uh, um, like I had that exact same thought, and now I think that thought is wrong. <laughs> there <laughs> appears to be record amounts of cash, but that's because there's record amounts of debt and you forget, or I forget. So, so it's not just free cash, something, something like it's 85 or 90% of stocks are trading like above their 52 week moving yeah, average one like of so, yeah. those metrics. Maybe it's a 20 week everything is at the top of the world because we're in a bubble right like and so i keep going like even you talk about all the crypto stuff like so dogecoin went to 39 cents or whatever do you know what that meant the market cap was i don't know the exact numbers but like hundreds of millions of dollars and i'm going where did this hundreds of millions of dollars appear from out of thin air and i'm going there's something going on here and then i go everyone is borrowing and that's why even uh, Bitcoin went from 64,000 to like 47,000 in days. And there's speculation based on the blockchain analytics that that was basically margin calls. So when this unravels, it's going to unravel that, so quickly. Yeah, that I think th- that conversation is even fascinating. Like I want to go in more deeply to to even map that out because it's, it is really interesting. Like how much, how much of this cash is spoken for effectively is is like what we're looking at, but there's like, there's all this cash everywhere. Seemingly. Well, I mean, it exists just how much is spoken for, how much is not right. I mean, you look at, uh, our right. Um, and it's, it's just like microcosm. That's just one, one dude in his family office. This is what I, I honestly don't know how to do. And if I knew the right person to ask, they'd be an amazing guest, but it's like, how do you put together a balance sheet for the world of like and not the world maybe it's the us but it's like it feels like there's yeah money in SPACs, money in PEs, money the money for people to do meme stocks and have them go to the moon like feels like there's money everywhere but what is what are the trade-offs and how does that unravel is the thing that i think is really hard to comprehend at let's a macro level at a micro level i think it gets a little easier um but it's still incredibly difficult yeah let's find somebody it is this is just i'm gonna say fascinating because i because the other other words are more frightening but it is like a. it's a time man this is a time well that book um i mean I don't know if it's all value investors. I certainly didn't I certainly didn't buy it thinking it was all value investors, but so far it's been all value investors and it talks a lot about in tough times in uh 1998, 1999 when their funds lagged behind the market how you know they either got fired or then they came roaring back because they were one of the only people in their field trying to still like live by fundamental analysis and rationale to say, this is blowing up soon. And so it it makes me really wanna have, I mean, I'm not gonna sell anything to go to cash, but I am going to continue to fortify my cash holdings because this is gonna blow up and it's gonna blow up quickly, but it could still be three years out. I mean, I don't know when it's gonna blow up. Yeah, we'll see. We'll keep watching the Dougles indicator.